In this present crisis, government is not the solution to our problem. Government is the problem. This is the I Spy Radio Show. You and I have a rendezvous with destiny. Keeping an eye on big government. We the people tell the government what to do. It doesn't tell us. The trouble with our liberal friends is not that they're ignorant. It's just that they know so much that isn't so. And now, here is your host, Mark Anderson. Joseph Stalin famously said education is a weapon whose effects depend on who holds it in his hands and at whom it is aimed. Want to bring down America? Seize control of education and take aim at our history, our culture, everything that made America a success. Because if you can destroy America's foundational walls, it's impossible to build on our success. This week is another in-depth look at education and parents' rights in education. Last week, we focused on school choice, and we heard from listeners who had further questions, such as about the funding and proficiency and competency requirements. So this week, we're going to address those and more. We'll also walk you through what choices are out there once you've made the choice to leave the public school your child is currently stuck in. Because schools right now boil down to bloated big box stores versus small businesses. On the one hand, you have a local mom and pop that has excellent customer service and they go out of their way to help you, although they are more expensive. This versus a Walmart where there is ready access to lots of cheap goods, but they honestly couldn't care less whether you personally shop there or not. There are just so many customers, losing you won't matter. The thing is, in a free market society, both are viable choices, depending on the consumer, what the consumer wants and what fits their needs. The criminal part is when there is only one choice, or if there are options, you only have access to those options if you're rich and don't care how much alternatives cost. That is what school choice seeks to correct to give every parent options. But before we get there, like that Stalin quote, the law is also a weapon whose effects depend on who holds it and at whom it is aimed. And on today's show, we'll talk about what happens when the lawless try to use laws to undermine the rule of law. In this case, Title IX, which was designed to protect girls and women in education, only for the Biden administration to try to undermine those protections by effectively removing the definition of a woman. And so there's nothing left to protect. Imagine being a feminist fighting all those years for equality, only to have your sex ruled out of existence by bureaucrats you helped elect. To talk about that, we have Kimberly Herman on the line. She is the General Counsel for Southeastern Legal Foundation, which fights for your rights and defends the Constitution. Kimberly, it's great to talk to you again. Great to be with you guys. Yeah, so I thought we'd start off our discussion with a little bit of discussion about Title IX, uh, which was passed in 1972. It was one of the uh, series of amendments to the Higher Education Act of 1965. Title IX was supposed to protect students from sex-based discrimination, perhaps best known for its defense of women's college sports, but it's more than just sports. So talk to us a bit about uh, Title IX's history and what it's supposed to do and to fix. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, Title IX came about um, to really protect and create opportunities for women in athletics. Um, You know, back in the 70s, women could not get to play the sports that they wanted to play. The schools wouldn't create the teams. They weren't getting the same opportunities that the boys were getting in both, you know, K through 12 and in colleges. And so Congress passed what's now called Title IX, and everyone, it's something that probably everyone that's listening has heard of, um, to make sure that women have those opportunities. 
Um, what's interesting, though, is that, you know, it, it prohibits sex discrimination. And this is why we're talking about it so much now, because the Biden administration now is trying to change the definition of what sex means. Right. So that Title IX, which was it was to protect women, is no longer there to protect women. It's really crazy. It, it is insane. And we'll definitely get more into that. I, I've seen articles that claimed that before Title IX came along, women could become nurses and teachers, but weren't allowed to become doctors or principals. And, and while I know that's not true, I mean, just ask Elizabeth Blackwell, the first woman doctor in the U.S. who got her degree in 1849. And there was also an entire college devoted to women pursuing medical degrees, the New England Female Medical College in Boston, also in the 1800s. But is there some truth to that hyperbole that women were prevented from getting certain degrees? Uh, women, women were prevented from getting certain degrees. When you actually look at it, um, you know, if colleges aren't admitting them into these programs, if colleges aren't allowing them and giving them the opportunities to actually get the degrees, then they are being excluded from entire um, career paths, right? This isn't, it isn't hyperbole, as you mentioned. This is what was actually happening. And that's when Congress stepped in, right? A lot of times, you know, we sit here and we, we don't want a bunch of laws passed because of overregulation and Congress extending their reach and, and the federal government trying to take too much power. But there's other times where they really do need to come in and they need to correct a wrong. And that's what Title IX was doing. And it was really just taking what's enshrined in our Constitution, which is equality through our Equal Protection Clause, and it was making sure with a law that everyone in our country knows that that equality extends to women in education. So I've also seen articles that claim that Title IX does not just apply to female students. It also prohibits discrimination based on gender identity and sexual orientation. Is that correct that Title IX does include those who identify as something they're not biologically, or is that a misinterpretation of the original intention? That is absolutely a misinterpretation of the original intention. And that's the current fight that we are living in today. So Title IX, it prohibits discrimination based on sex. That is the word that is used in Title IX. And that's where we get into what does sex mean? Well, when Title IX was passed, sex meant a man or a woman. There weren't, you know, 600, 2,000, however many there are different, uh, you know, gender identities that could exist. There was no sex stereotyping. These things just were not even contemplated by the Congress that enacted Title IX. Sex means man or a woman. So I understand that President Trump was trying to fix Title IX by narrowing his definition of, of, a bit. Uh, for example, narrowing the definition of sexual harassment to include only harassment that happened on campus versus a blanket protection against any, any harassment anywhere. What he was trying to do, were those good improvements or not? You know, the improvements that Trump was putting in were really ensuring that um, the enforcement side of Title IX was only enforced when there was actually a, an act of discrimination that happened. And so what you end up having with Title IX is what a lot of times people refer to as kangaroo courts um, in the sense of you can make an allegation. So a girl or a guy can come in and say, so-and-so offended me. They hurt my feelings or they actually did something serious to me. And instead of going through an actual trial and an actual process where you're getting your evidence and everyone's represented by attorneys, the schools would just go through a very closed door process 
and come to a conclusion. And it was, it, frankly, it can destroy lives. There's no due process mm. in, that pro- in, in that experience. And so the Trump changes, that was what it was really focused on. It was ensuring that there was due process. I see. Okay, uh, time for a break. Southeastern Legal Foundation is supporting a lawsuit against the Biden administration over its dismantling of Title IX. We'll talk about what he did and what the Southeastern Legal Foundation is doing to stop him after this. And welcome back. This is the Ice Radio Show. We're talking today to Kimberly Herman. She is the general counsel for the Southeastern Legal Foundation. You can find out more about them at slfliberty.org. And, of course, we'll link that up on today's show page, which is 1306. And uh, so, Kimberly, you guys are pushing back against the Biden administration. But before he came along, has the implementation of Title IX moved away from its original intentions or been used to defend things it was never intended to defend? Um, it's gone completely in the other direction, right? And that's really what we saw as we were just, you know, previously discussing changes that the Trump administration made to Title IX regulations. They were trying to bring it back to the original intent. Um, As we see with so many of these kind of civil rights laws, the left will come in and expand them in a way that was never intended. And you're not actually protecting civil rights. What they're doing is they're redefining what those words mean. So we hear a lot of the terms like equity instead of equality, right? They actually change the intent, as you mentioned, of these laws. And that's exactly what was happening with Title IX. Unfortunately, on day one of Biden's presidency, he said, nope, we're going to go back to changing it. And we're going to ignore the original intent of Title IX. And we're going to go ahead and say that it extends to sexual orientation and gender identity. Um, from there, they're now trying to expand it even more, and I know we'll, we'll probably get into that. Um, but we have moved very far away from the original intent in the Biden administration's definitions. So uh, according to your press release, the Biden administration released guidance documents requiring schools and extracurricular programs to recognize students' preferred pronouns and transgender identities, removing uh, protections from uh, for women in sports and open up bathrooms and locker rooms to students of opposite sexes. So what happens if they don't uh, comply, uh, these, these schools? Yeah, well, if, the, if these schools don't comply with Title IX, as the Department of Education interprets it, then they can arguably lose their federal funding. Um, and so that's one of the things that they hold at stake. And so they come in and say, hey, look, Title IX says what it says. It says you can't discriminate based on sex. But we, as the agencies, we as the Department of Education, are going to tell you what we mean by sex. And if you discriminate, then treat anyone different based on sexual orientation, gender identity, sexual stereotypes, which is undefined and nobody really knows what that means. It can mean anything. Then we're going to come in and we're going to tell you that if you don't do X, Y, and Z that we say, you could lose your federal funding. So it's a, it can really be a very scary thing for one of these colleges or K-12 schools. Well, that was one of the things that you guys pointed out in, in your great press release there, is that they broadly banned making assumptions about what it means to be a boy or girl, but then the guidance documents don't actually define what those terms mean. I mean, that's that's really bizarre. I mean, it, you, you could they could effectively pull funding based on anything. 
That's exactly right. You know, and a really good example is something that happened up in Wisconsin earlier um, or later in, in 2022. There were a couple of, I think it was middle school boys, maybe high school, and they were refusing to use incorrect pronouns. Right. You had a boy that wanted to be called uh, a she or it was a girl that wanted to be called a he. And that went against their beliefs. It went against their their First Amendment rights. It went against their religious beliefs. And the school came in and said, look, you have to call them by whatever pronoun they want, because otherwise we're going to get dinged by the Department of Education. Now, fortunately, our friends up in Wisconsin came to their rescue and went to the school and said, no, 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 no. That's not how this works. But that's what these these schools are so scared that they're mm. going to get their federal funding or that they're going to get in trouble, that they're forcing kids to use incorrect pronouns or to, you know, follow these rules that nobody even knows what they are, right? They can't even define them. Um, and it infringes on their free speech and on their, you know, their free exercise of their religion also. Well, yeah. This is one of the things that frustrates me is, I mean, how is this whole pronoun thing even a thing? The First Amendment gives people the right to free speech, but your free speech, your right to free speech ends at my mouth. You can't mandate what I have to say. That's not free speech. That's compelled speech. Exactly. And there's really going to be an interesting intersection of the law um, between the First Amendment and Title IX. Right now, as you mentioned, we just have guidance documents from the Biden administration, but they have proposed completely new rules that will change what Title IX means, not just a guidance letter that they put out, but this will be rule of law. And we are fighting tooth and nail to stop them from formalizing those rules. And when they do, we're going to be ready to stand there and to file lawsuits against the Biden administration, because those new rules are going to, as you said, violate the First Amendment. So you guys have uh, weighed in now and you've filed, um, I I think it was an amicus brief. Uh, Can you talk to us about the lawsuit that you're supporting and and what, um, because it's it's multiple states, isn't it? It is. So there's multiple states that filed a lawsuit um, against the federal government because of these guidance documents. So as I mentioned, we have Title IX, which is a law passed by Congress. Then the Department of Education comes in and they passed regulations saying, this is how we're going to interpret and enforce Title IX. Well, they wanted to skip that step. And so instead, they just issue a guidance letter saying that this is how we're going to interpret Title IX. Public, you don't get to weigh in. We're going to skip all the procedural steps. And this is what Title IX means now, which is what we've been talking about, that it now extends to sexual orientation and gender identity. So the state stepped in and filed a lawsuit against them. And we just uh, last week filed a brief with that court down in the Sixth Circuit down in Tennessee, um, specifically on the First Amendment issues, to raise that issue and to let the court know the states are bringing really great arguments, but don't forget about the First Amendment rights of mm. all citizens and how that's going to affect the students. Well, absolutely. So um, what do you suspect the lawsuit's prospects are there in the Sixth? I mean, I think that the lawsuit's prospects, if they can actually get to the merits, are going to be really strong. Mm. Um, there, there's no question that these laws and this guidance actually do violate the Constitution for the reasons, I mean, you're compelling speech, you're also chilling speech, um, you are enforcing this without due process of the law. There's a lit list of these. 
what may happen is the new regulation may come down before they can actually reach a ruling in that, and we'll see what happens then. Um, but I really think that our prospects are strong on winning these cases, um, what, what, challenging these these Title IX regulations. When you say um, that could come down be- before the ruling, are mm-hmm. you talking about it, they, they may lift, um, Biden may lift this? Is that what you mean? No. So, so what's going to happen is these are just guidance documents, what they're challenging. When I say guidance documents, it's literally just people at the Department of Education penning out a memo to the file saying, we're now going to say that sex means sexual orientation, gender identity, sexual stereotypes. They didn't pass a law. They didn't go through a notice and comment process, which is required by law to actually change definitions of things. It's just somebody sitting in a desk that pens off this memo. Hmm. Um, And they know that that can't stand. And that's why they are also going through the more formal process. And that's where they, we all send in hundreds of thousands of comments. And when they eventually come down with that, we will file a lawsuit. It's really a convoluted process, which shows another problem with our government. Yeah, oh, absolutely. <laughs> absolutely. Okay. Um, let's continue this discussion about Title IX and what it all means. Uh, we'll, we are talking with Kimberly Herman. She's with the Southeastern Legal Foundation. Stay with us. Welcome back. Kimberly Herman is the general counsel for Southeastern Legal Foundation. They have filed an amicus brief uh, in support of uh, multi-states suing the Biden administration over their guidance, uh, which would essentially dismantle uh, Title IX. And Kimberly, on on that point, if if essentially what they're trying to do is remove the idea of womanhood from uh, Title IX and protections for women, what's the point of Title IX anymore? There is no point of Title IX anymore at that point. And that's a good, but that is, you, I mean, you hit the nail on the head. That's exactly what they're trying to do. Um, We've seen this across the country in so many different areas that we work in, not just in Title IX, whether it's working, um, you know, with challenging curriculum and in classrooms, whether it's um, working with the detransitioners that we will frequently speak with. There is an attack on womanhood across the country. Title IX is a way that they can use our laws to attack womanhood. And that's exactly what they are doing. It will no longer protect women. In fact, we see that in sports, right? Mm-hmm. Instead, you, you have men competing against women in sports and taking their scholarships. That's an attack on women. That's sure. not protecting them. Sure it is. Uh, well, I don't know if you caught it, but um, Sarah Huckabee Sanders, in, in her response to the State of the Union, I think she got it right when she said that the dividing line in America is no longer between right or left. The choice is between normal or crazy. I mean, have we really gotten so insane that we actually need the Supreme Court to tell the rest of society what a woman is? Um, unfortunately, we do. But I will give hope. OK, let me let me give everyone that's listening some hope here. The courts are willing to do it. We recently had a ruling down here. I'm in Atlanta, Georgia, and we had a case down here in the 11th Circuit where the court finally did say, boys are boys, girls are girls. A school cannot require girls to share a bathroom with boys. It cannot require boys to share a bathroom with girls. Hmm. And it wrote a very clear and very easy to read opinion in that case saying boys are boys and girls are girls, and that's what it means by sex. 
does that extend? Statutes. You know, uh, I assume that was for K through twelve type of ruling. Does that extend to colleges where these are now adults and they can do stupid things if they want to do stupid things? It should, because it was it was actually a, a Title IX case. So it was a case that was brought. We did not bring it. We were not involved in it. Um, but it was a great case, and it was a case dealing with Title IX and whether or not Title IX requires schools to, um, to have shared bathrooms, right? And whether a school can actually tell boys you can't use the girls' bathroom and girls you can't use the boys' bathroom. And so... Um, it was a case on Title IX. Title IX applies to K-12, through it applies to higher ed. There should mm-hmm. be no distinction there. Whether or not you're an adult, um, you, can, you can make your own personal choices. It doesn't mean that other people have to give up their rights That's exactly because right. of your personal choices. Yeah, that, that is exactly right. Uh, as far as that 11th Circuit um, uh, case there, is that already being challenged? What's the status of that? Yeah, and so it was challenged in the district court, and then it went up to the 11th Circuit, and they ruled, and and of course, I'm remiss at the name of the case right now, um, but it dealt with a school district that was in Florida. Um, And the 11th Circuit made a formal finding and wrote a a wonderful opinion on this. Um, There was another one that came out a couple weeks later, and I forget what, it was from a, a, a lower court, a district court, saying a similar line of argument. And so we're really starting to see some of these judges be brave. And say, look, this has gone too far. Um, the law says what the law says. We're not going to change the meaning of it. That's not what we're here to do as judges. Mm. And I think it's also um, something that we're seeing in, in the courts, in the federal courts across the country. Trump did a phenomenal job of getting ju- judges in these positions that are rule of law judges. They are not legislating from the bench for conservatives. They are not legislating for the bench for liberals. They are just interpreting the law by its original meaning and by its text. Well, and they're very true to that, and that, it's been wonderful to see. I was going to say that, that is awesome to hear. Um, you know, gender dysphoria is a real thing. It used to be recognized as mental illness, and um, back in the the most previous uh, primary, actually, um, we had interviewed Angela Plowhead. She's a practicing psychologist who uh, was running for Congress in uh, CD six here in Oregon. And she had told us that organizations like the American Psychological Association are now recommending affirming counseling. And psychologists can actually lose their license if they try to correct someone who misidentifies themselves as something that they're not. If you've got formerly professional organizations like the APA who've abandoned previous views and now embrace gender dysphoria and and think that that's perfectly fine, what impact does that have on on the legal side to defend Title IX? Well, there's really... um Two things. One, when you're looking at the definition of sex, we can't change that definition of sex. Congress intended, knew what it meant when it passed Title IX. And so if people want to change it, they need to go to Congress and they need to get Congress to change it. Right. So it's a matter of who has the power to actually do that here. It's not some random bureaucrat in the Department of Education sitting at their desk. The second thing is when you actually look at gender dysphoria, all it takes is a one-hour online consultation for a child to get a written order that they have gender dysphoria and to then go get referred to a doctor for operations and um, treatment mm. towards the way they want. It is, that's at one hour. It's, it's startling and it's terrifying. 
It it absolutely is terrifying, and um, and and I think you rightly said these are children. For heaven's sake, if you want to do this kind of stuff, do it as an adult. These are kids. I'm I'm so tired of these attacks on 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 kids, and uh, so I'm so thankful that you guys have weighed in on this, and and uh, we will certainly keep an eye on this going forward. Uh, that was Kimberly Herman with the Southeastern Legal Foundation. You can find out more about them by heading to slfliberty.org. And Kim, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Get a little more intelligence on big government. This is the iSpy Radio Show. So last week it was all about school choice. But what does that look like? How to go about it? And what's that mean for parents who opt to take their child out of a public school? What then? And what about the curriculum, or how do those options meet competency or proficiency standards? Are there even any? So to discuss all that, I'd like to welcome Mark Thielman back to the show. He was a candidate for Oregon's governor, but before that, he was the superintendent of the Alsea School District, pretty much the only school district that thrived during COVID, in spite of a state government agency determined to bring him under control. Mark, it's great to talk to you again. Well, it's good to be back. So we got lots of questions about school choice and what that would look like once a parent decides to uh, opt out of the local public school. But before we get going on the choosing school side of school choice, we just talked with Kimberly Herman of the Southeastern Legal Foundation regarding their support of a challenge to the Biden administration's guidance that effectively does away with Title IX protections for girls and women. And one of the things that she mentioned was that schools and universities that don't comply with Biden's mandates around pronouns and other gender dysphoria affirming actions could actually lose their federal funding. Well, that got me to thinking, are we aiming too low on the Real School Choice Initiative? I mean, currently these movements seek to have the education funding pegged to the students rather than the schools so they can go to whichever school they want. But should we do that for all students of all ages, meaning higher ed as well? So the federal funding uh, follows students rather than blanket federal funding going to the schools, which includes colleges. And if so, then would it stop federal agencies from being able to blackmail colleges and universities into adopting whatever woke ideology they're pushing and stop them from holding schools hostage? Well, um, you know, I mean, I, I appreciate the way that you, you frame that. I mean, where, you know, where's, what's the limiting principle? You know, where does this stuff stop? Because Title IX was originally created to deal with uh, uh, gender or sex, right? Mm -hmm. Male and female, as it was described. Uh, and then since then, um, the, the people on the progressive left have worked it into all kinds of uh, idiosyncratic identities related to gender, not sex. So you really have to say, which is it? Is it, is it gender? Is it sex? Because the law says sex. And then they say, well, we're going to redefine it. And what, what we get now is uh, quit, quit asking things, quit, quit pointing out the obvious, quit this is what the federal government's saying. Uh, quit, quit debating with us. We're in charge. We have the purse strings. So you now have to uh, deny Title IX protections for biological or cisgendered women. And uh, women is now what we say it is. And that's, that's the reality. I like to be real direct. And this is why I will tell you and, and to reaffirm for anyone listening to your show, no one's going to lose their federal funds if they don't follow Biden's uh, ridiculous decree. And the reason is, is that there's enough uh, Supreme Court precedence that lays out for this, um, if, if, which is why school choice is so important. So the, the beauty of it is, is in fact, um, it, it's a good time to be in a private school right now because of the latest Supreme Court ruling, which said that if you give any federal money at all to any religious or private nonprofit, 
uh, a youth summer program, you name it, uh, then you have to give to all. And that, that is a, a whole, that's kind of changed the flavor for this. So it's really important that people understand that Biden is being political. Ultimately, though, um, what, he's, what he's unknowingly done is he just put an adrenaline shot in the arm of school choice because mm-hmm. he's just empowered parents. And, uh, you know, when I was in LC, they said they were going to take our funds and they said, you know, we're going to, but if you read the fine print, they never took a dime away from the school district. They said they froze our access to the fund. And uh, since masks were removed statewide, guess what? All those funds flowed back to the school district. It is pomp and circumstance because of the Title IX issues related to those funds are paramount. And, um, and what I want people to do is, is to use it and understand that this is why we need school choice. Well, and, and, and that's kind of and my point thing. in asking that question is that if all of the monies were divided up and pegged to individual students, wouldn't that then prevent agencies, whether it's the state or federal, uh, to come in and say, well, you either obey us or we're going to pull your funds? Because those monies have yeah. already, they're tied to that student, and so they can't pull it. Yeah, and the reality of it is they can't withhold the funds because there's no limiting principle anymore. And, and you know, I, I demonstrated this to the entire state of Oregon. Uh, I mean, the media, they lost their minds. Well, don't you care about <laughs> the $258,000? And I went, nope. Um, because we're not losing those funds. They're just temporarily frozen, and we don't need them for now. The district uh, still hasn't spent them, and it's been, what, well over a year now, um, and they still haven't spent those funds. And that's what, what people need to understand is that, you know, the money all goes into a big – all of the money, doesn't matter what fund it comes from, goes into one big pot, and it sits in the state treasury. And then school districts get to access it. And the only thing they can do is deny you access for some political reason temporarily, but not permanently. Mm -hmm. So moving on to choosing schools, um, if parents want to uh, opt into school choice, how do you know when it's best to take your child out? When is enough enough? Well, it really goes back to are your values represented in the culture of that school? I mean, that is the simplest way for a parent to navigate something like this. If you walk into the school and you see things up on the wall and you're, you know, you're looking at the lessons and things your kids are learning if the, you know, and you say, you know, I'm not sure I'm comfortable with this. And, you know, why aren't you reading? What do you mean you're not reading whole novels? You know, all of those little indicators that could be of concern to any individual parent. And I'm not even here to tell you which indicators those are. Maybe your deal is why are they re- you know, making you read all these novels? But it, it needs to be up to the parent, and which is why we in society, in civil society, have to rely on parents because children are not the mere property of the state. They, they, they are actually um, belong. They actually belong to their parents, and that was set up in the 1930s in the, in the U.S. Supreme Court. And so parents do have rights, and parents do have a say. And what I'm saying is, is that a responsible state government relies on parents to be the purveyors of their children's education. Mm. Diversity requires that. So for parents, are your values being reflected in that school? Do you like what you're seeing in your kids? Are you, you know, do you feel like your kids are learning? And do you feel like your kids are becoming competent? And these are subjective things that we have to trust parents to decide. And I'm here to tell you, as a former public school superintendent, if you are a conservative parent, in other words, you like, you know, um, you know, apple pie and Chevrolet and, you know, you like America and uh, America in general, (laughs) 
uh, if you're patriotic, um, um, then then you don't have very many options in Oregon public school system. Your values are not represented in the public school system. Mm. Okay, everyone stay with us. We'll have more with Mark Thielman. We're talking about real school choice today and what exactly that looks like. Back. This is the Ice Park Radio Show. We're continuing our series on parental rights. Uh, last week was about school choice, and now we're talking to Mark Thielman, uh, former superintendent for Elsie School District, uh, about what to do once you've decided to choose a new school. And uh, Mark has been leading the charge on school choice. Uh, he's the uh, chief uh, petitioner with the ballot initiative. It's going to be on the ballot in 2024 here in Oregon. He's also working with the election integrity groups, so he's got his hands in lots of pies. And um, so, Mark, and okay, so. Parents have seen some signs that their school, their child's school is maybe underperforming. How do you decide, uh, or, or let me ask it this way, uh, what are some of the signs you should look for from the school itself in terms of how do you find out whether they're uh, underperforming? Uh, because, of course, you can't just judge by grades because they could be doing grade inflation giving everybody A's. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, this is a tough one because uh, things have changed quite rapidly due to COVID when the state said we're no longer going to require standards and apply standards in education. So um, Tina Kotek, the current governor, said that now all students have the assurance that they will graduate. And again, no limiting principle. There's no burden upon students or accountability for students to uh, be required to learn things to a substantive level. And, uh, and the reason is, is that the current culture in public schools uh, has a, it does not like competence. They don't want, they, they seem to have an aversion to competence. They want compliance. And that's one of the things I combated for years and uh, because uh, I just refused to do that. Uh, so what you want to do as a parent is require, depending on what age group, it doesn't matter what age group, but let's just look at the K-12 system is if are you receiving actual uh, um, skilled data, that assessment data uh, that the teacher in the classroom is using, if it's on the elementary, about reading, writing, and math? Um, are children being, as the school district applying, regardless of whether the state requires it or not, what we would call real-time data for competency uh, assessment for each individual student? So. What, uh, in LC, what we always did is we tested every single kid in reading and writing and math at the beginning of the year. We did it again in the middle of the year and at the end of the year. And we used the MAP system, which was, it, these were, it didn't take a lot of time. We were able to, to do the testing rather quickly and then get kids back to learning, you know, moving forward in their uh, curriculum work. Mm-hmm. And why, the reason it was so popular, I mean, parents were trained. They, so many would look forward to conference time. So they could see that how their child has each of, you know, if they have more than one, how each of their children have progressed individually. And then you got data from that. You know, uh, it could be, you know, um, um, word fluency or it could be letter recognition or sound recognition if you have a first grader. And one of your children may be a little bit struggling with some of those skills and another one might be might be struggling in other skills. Well, parents are, they, it's amazing what parents do. They're like, oh man, well, I'm going to work with this one on that. I'm going to work on this one at that at night. And what it leads to is more uh, learning gets done for the child. Children feel supported. They, they see synergy between mom and dad. They can have a common vocabulary between the classroom and what mom and dad are saying at home. And um, there's accountability for the child because the adults in their life, both the teacher in the classroom and more importantly, the parents, are there saying, hey, school's your job. 
and you know you're 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 doing well here. You're at grade level here. You're ahead of grade level on in these skills. But these are some areas where we need to shore up. So we're going to focus on those in the next six weeks or eight weeks. And, so, uh, that model is very effective. If your school's not using a model like that, you need to look for another school. So are there telltale signs besides the obvious ones of poor grades uh, that parents should be on the lookout for? In, in other words, how do you know it's the school and not the child who's underperforming? Well, if the child comes home and says that um, you know they're somehow uh, racist because they, they don't have enough melanin in their skin, <laughs> Or if they come home and say, well, the Constitution was, you know, uh, is a document of slavery, or they say something that, um, you know, is ideological, you know what I'm saying? Uh, my teacher says that I could become a girl or a boy. All of the, the research is showing that those things are counterproductive to skill development in terms of education for kids. So in other words, what is the system emphasizing? Is it emphasizing an ideology? Or is it emphasizing uh, what we would call uh, kind of a common sense curriculum? And that's, that's something that only parents can decide. Some parents might want that ideology being taught to their children. Um, some don't. But my issue is, is there's things we all agree on. And this is where schools should orient their focus. I've never had a parent complain because their, children, their child could read at grade level, ever, in 20 years of being a superintendent. Mm. Not one time did I have a parent come in and say, my kid is doing too well in math. <laughs> really? And, and so the humor of it is, um, is now you can see why ideology detracts from skill development because uh, we're focusing on things that become divisive right, where the right. parents start to not like the teacher or the school. So that's, I'm trying to give, the, you know, give you a flavor for that. So that's what mm-hmm. you should be looking for as a parent. So for the sake of discussion, let's just assume Oregon passes some form of real school choice where the funds follow the students. Uh, there's all sorts of different types of schools out there. How do you decide which school is best? Because you've got, you could maybe put your kid in a neighboring public school. You've got private schools that are traditional, and I don't know if they've got boarding schools around here or not, but uh, you've also got parochial or religious-based schools. You've got charter schools, magnet schools, uh, Montessori schools, virtual online schools, Waldorf schools, micro schools, and home schools. So how do you know where your child uh, would, do, would thrive at? Well, um, that's where parents have to engage in school shopping. And, you know, just like we shop for, uh, you know, if we're looking to buy a car, we might look at different makes and models and we might, you know, types. And then we might settle on one after we do some research and et cetera, you know. Um, it's, it, it becomes a, a whole new thing for parents to engage in because, um, you know, most parents don't have a choice. This is your neighborhood school. This is where the kid's going to go to school. But if you give a parent the choice and the financial means to direct where their child might go because maybe they never, they wanted, they want a private education for their kid, but they could never afford it. Well, this um, school choice initiative is the great equalizer. I mean, if you're really hell bent on equity, um, uh, people on the left, the public school union should be supportive of this, but, uh, and they ought to be financially because public schools are going to make more money with the uh, current proposal, the education savings account, school choice proposal, once they sit down and do the math. And that's the beauty of it. There's too many wins when it comes to school choice in which funding follows the kid. Right, right. Too many wins for society and community, too many wins for um, um, people in terms of their socioeconomic um, uh, place yep. on the scale, you know, whether yep. you're rich or poor. And, and there's too, many, too much value. It actually empowers and restores parents to their rightful place yep. as directors Absolutely. for each of their children. Yep. And, and one of the things I, I truly love about this is it opens up school choice for everybody. 
It's not just the rich. The rich have always had a choice as to where to put their kids, but this opens the door for everybody to have that as well. All right, uh, we're going to take a break. Uh, We are talking about school choice and uh, where to put your child if you choose to do that. We're talking with Mark Thielman, who's leading the charge for school choice here in Oregon. Stay with us. This is the final segment here on the Ask My Radio Show. We're talking with Mark Thielman about school choice. Uh, last week it was looking at the broader aspects of school choice, and now we're looking at, okay, so what happens when you decide to choose a new school? Uh, Mark is leading the charge for that here in Oregon with his petition to put that on the ballot in 2024. So you mentioned in that last segment there about doing some shopping for schools. How do parents do that? Are, are there particular resources that they can go to that you're aware of? Well, you know, um, ironically, uh, check with your real estate agent. It's, mm. <laughs> I say that tongue-in-cheek, but uh, they're actually quite uh, proficient at schools in an area, and, and I say that with all seriousness. Real estate agents uh, were some of the folks that gave me the idea of, of how, how do we do school shopping because, you know, they're selling homes, and people have questions when they move into an area, and realtors tend to know that. So if you know a realtor, start there. But the bottom line is, it's, is uh, the Internet is a, probably the best resource and and look at parents can be holistic you know you want to look at uh logistics you know is this accessible can, is this going to work with my work schedule do they provide busing or not that kind of thing if you need it all of those questions can be answered but uh what uh i'm a guy who has you know i've raised many many children i have nine children between uh uh, uh my wife and i and uh at one time i had four of my children in four different school uh, wow. programs one in private the other three in public, and those three were in um, uh, two different school districts and so and programs and the thing is it was it was awesome because that's what each of my tri- children needed. They had specific unique needs that could only be addressed by finding the right school or the right school program for that child and um, i can I am in grateful. Uh, that I was in a position long before we had a school choice initiative or even school choice being popular. But as a school superintendent, I, I was in a unique position to uh, to access that for my children. And, and so I, I've lived the benefits of what school choice can produce, and it needs to be accessible to everyone. Yeah, absolutely. So one of the questions that listeners um, wrote in about were proficiency requirements, in particular for homeschoolers. How do parents know that these new schools that they're taking their kids out of and putting them into are fitting uh, their child and not just there are some, some sort of degree mill, uh, you know, handing them a degree without demonstrating proficiency like what Oregon's public schools do now. Sure. Well, one of the best ways to do it is um, you can check with the colleges and Department of Education. I think, I believe they still post this data, even though they're not requiring standards, but you can see how students do when they leave a school district or a high school hmm. when they get to college or when they go to trade school, what the dropout rates are and what their average GPA is. And what you'll find is that Oregon trails behind most states in terms of kids who get good grades in high school, they go to college, they tend to get more average grades, and largely because they're not prepared. There's a gap there. Um, Private schools in Oregon are the opposite of that. They are among the best in the nation producing tremendously consistent results for the last 40 years. Hmm. That doesn't mean they're better than public schools. It just means that they they're, they haven't been distracted. See? So sure. they tend to be more consistent over time with learning the basics. And yeah. so it's, it's amazing what happens when you focus on those. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's, it's shocking. <laughs> um, but that's the beauty of it because um, it creates a little bit of competition if we sure. have school sure. choice. Absolutely. And that's only going to help public schools get better. Yep. 
Uh, well, it's not going to make them worse. Oh, absolutely. Uh, competition always uh, raises all boats there. Um, as, as far as homeschooling or some of these uh, you know, private, you know, like micro schools or virtual schools, do they still have to pass certain tests that are required or um, are they on their own? Yeah, so private schools or micro schools, and it, and it depends on uh, if they're sponsored by a district or not. But um, under the, the school choice initiative, uh, a, you know, a teacher who's registered to teach with the state can hang their shingle up on the, uh, on, on the uh, door there and say, hey, I'm going to open a micro school. And parents can use their ESA money to pay that teacher. So it brings in entrepreneurship. Uh, however, the, if, if it's not sponsored by a school district, it's technically considered a private school. Uh, and then the parents who are paying for that service from that teacher would be the ones to determine if their children are learning. And again, it goes back to what, what gauges. I mean, almost all teachers today are used to using data. They like using data. It, it gives them good feedback and it helps them meet the needs of individual uh, students. And so, that's the same for like homeschools. They have to take certain tests. Yeah, homeschools do have requirements. And, okay. you know, and the, the thing about homeschools is the predominantly vast, I mean, well over 90% of homeschool kids tested at grades 3, 5, 8, and 10. Um, and over almost, you know, like over 90% are ahead of their public school wow. counterparts. Wow. They, they, no one really knows why. Yeah. Um, so one of the other questions, we only got about a minute and a half here with you. One of the other questions that listeners wanted to know is how are the funds that follow those students, how are they protected from fraud? I mean, can parents just run off with the money? Yeah. Well, the parents never touch the money. They have to go to a, um, a nonprofit third party. Uh, and it's, it's kind of similar to political action committees, you know. Um, you have to have a separate treasurer and all that. And um, it's what what it does is is it it has a third party that, that basically says, we're going to be the controller of the money. The parents can direct. And if the parent says, I want to, you know, get some plastic surgery and fly to, you know, take my kids on a field trip to Hawaii, <laughs> um, that, that third party would say, um, I don't that think doesn't so. fit with the criteria of the money. Yeah. <laughs> so there's protection built in that way. Good. And then uh, again, that if, if parents, parents are incentivized to, to, to spend the money wisely and to not utilize every dollar because that money will follow their child into college or trade school once they graduate from high school. And so, so there's a lot of reasons um, to uh, get excited about this. It's going to be a brave new world yeah. because it's, it's not about parents being able to just run away and spend the money on whatever they want. Yeah, I, I am really excited about this movement. I think it's going to truly improve education. Unfortunately, we are up against the clock. Mark Thielman, I want to thank you so much for your time today. Hey, thanks for having me, guys. If you'd like some more information about today's topics, visit today's show page at iSpyRadio.com. Look for This Week at the top of the page or in the right-hand sidebar for today's and recent shows. Or use the search bar that's also on the right-hand side for show 13-06. On there, you can find out more about Southeastern Legal Foundation, their fight for your freedoms and to defend Title IX. Their website is slfliberty.org, slfliberty.org. And Mark's website for school choice is educationfreedomfororegon.com. That's F-O-R, not the number, educationfreedomfororegon.com. And we have some resources to get you started if you're looking to do a little shopping for schools. If you've already moved from a public school and you have resources that help you decide, let us know. We'd love to be able to share those and add those to the list of resources. We're in this together because, as we say every week, the best information does you no good if you don't use it. Reagan, what do you think? I do not believe in a faith that will fall on us no matter what we do. 
I do believe in a fate that will fall on us if we do nothing. It's more than a show. It's self-defense. The I Spy Radio Show.